Hello, everyone. Amelia Taylor-Hockford here, Archonnect's Managing Editor. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded live as part of Archonnect's podcasting event series, Next Up, held at Los Angeles' Architecture and Design Museum on October 29th. We've hosted Next Ups before at Giant Jai Gallery in LA and at the inaugural Chicago Architecture Biennial. This time around, we're focusing on the LA River and the constellation of issues surrounding its redevelopment. With so much controversy and history surrounding the river, we wanted to do justice to its complexity, so we gathered a vast range of professionals, from artists and architects to planners and journalists, to share their perspective. We hope you enjoy these interviews from the first half of Next Up, the LA River. We'll release the rest next week. You can also subscribe to our other podcast, Archonnect Sessions, to hear all the interviews as individual episodes. Our first interview is with Francis Anderton, host of KCRW's Design and Architecture podcast, and Christopher Hawthorne, architecture critic for the Los Angeles Times. So I guess we're ready to get started. We're going to talk to our first panelist. We have Francis Anderton, host of KCRW's Design and Architecture podcast, and Christopher Hawthorne from the Los Angeles Times. Um, So to start, to hear from both of you as non-LA natives... I'd like to hear what your first impressions were of the river as a piece of L.A. urbanism and as something that gave identity to the city when you first arrived. So, Francis, why don't we start with you? Well, let's see. I might be the oldest person in this room. So I remember when the movie Grease came out. And in fact, my, I and my friends went to Greece, I think, five nights back to back and then proceeded to spend at least a month dressing up in Greece outfits and reenacting various scenes from Greece, you know, including the famous car race. So then when I subsequently moved to LA in 1991 and became great friends with um, a fellow that many of you in this room might have known, John Chase. And in those early, I know, lovely John, we miss him so much. And John and I used to go on various adventures around town. And in that time, going to downtown Los Angeles or going to the river was really a kind of strange and mystical sort of experience. And he and I somehow got down into the dry river basin. I can't even remember now how we did so because it all felt terribly illicit. And I found myself, you know, in the location from that movie. And it was sheer heaven, you know. So anyway, subsequently, of course, I understood that the river could not exclusively be the built realization of one's movie fantasies, you know, that obviously (laughs) the river needed to be far more than that. Um, But that early impression was a very, very strong one, for sure. Now, in 91, when I arrived, almost from the day I arrived, I heard river conversations. Um, I quickly met a man named Arthur Golding, who was the head of the uh, board of uh, on a journal that I was working for, for AIALA. And he and a cohort, I'm sure some of you in this room know him, were trying to get the Taylor Yard. They were already working on Taylor Yard. It was a conversation that was going on. And um, he was very engaged with river issues. I guess Folar was probably about seven years old at that time. So it was very much something that a, a cohort was already preoccupied with, but we'd have nowhere near, there was nowhere near the gravitational pull to the river that we have now. And then the riots happened, or the civil unrest, and that sort of, I think, changed kind of the energy for for a while in terms of what people were preoccupied with. But then in 2002, I remember talking with Bill Fain, you know, Johnson Fain, some of you may know, and Bill Fain, you know, got Hage Space in the Los Angeles Times 
to share his idea for a greenway, a river greenway, taking the LA River as the spine as, of, of what would be a whole network, which now, of course, Frank is talking about. And many have talked about the idea of connecting LA through the greenways. To the extent I've tracked this, you know, it does feel as if we're, we're arriving at a moment now of a sort of intensity of energy around the river, but it certainly that goes back over those decades. And you hear the same ideas sort of being revisited. And the primary one, of course, is this is this linear um, shaft that goes through the city and how one's going to turn that into a kind of organizing sort of principle for the region. So I think that's enough for me for now. I should probably hand it over to Chris. But that Greece location may wind up being somehow changed. Um, I think like Francis, um, my first experience visually came through the movies and Hollywood. And then for me, it was really the first kind of intentional encounter with the river were through the literature on the city. And when I was teaching at UC Berkeley, just before I came to Los Angeles, in fact, when I got the job at the LA Times in 2004, I was teaching a class that was supposed to be on Shenzhen in China. And I convinced Orville Shallow, who was the dean at the journalism school at UC Berkeley, where I was teaching. And I had a lot of architecture and planning students as well uh, to change the syllabus in about two weeks time and make it a class about Los Angeles so that I could get myself doing all the reading about the history of LA that I knew that I would be needing to. So in that class, reading Eden by Design, which was relatively new at that point, the Bill Deverell, Greg Heist book, bringing back the Olmsted plan, which significantly, I've just been looking, actually has a kind of afterword of a conversation between the two of them and Laurie Olin on the river, which of course is relevant again now that he's working with Frank's office on the river project. And then I think perhaps even more significant, reading the John McPhee Control of Nature uh, book, the section on Los Angeles, and really thinking about the ways in the, the, the ways in which the story of the river begins in the hills and this the kind of debris, the this whole battalion of debris basins that we have up in the foothills that collect all of this debris and really change, really preclude the possibility of what we think of as a, a river in the fully operational ecological sense down the hill. And and then when I got here, I started making some of the same pilgrimages to see, to walk in those spaces that I had seen and, and read about and, and started doing that as soon as I actually got got myself to L.A. I think in the public perception of what is going on with the river right now, there's a little bit of a unfair assumption that nothing has ever happened yet, and now everything is happening, um, when in fact the history of attempts to bring the river back into the public consciousness and really do a huge master plan with it have been going for decades. And I think that part of this is not exclusively an issue of journalism, but something that journalists have a unique opportunity to try to bring aspects of the river that are underreported to a general audience. So, and one way of doing that is, of course, through writing and criticism, but also through radio. It's just an inherently different medium that you can have a different feeling of communicating these ideas through. So I wanted to hear from both of you, what are the most underreported or least represented aspects of the river that as a journalist or as someone working and bringing that information to the public, you feel are the most important for people to know. Um, I'm happy to take that one. I think in certain ways it's the most important story. And you're right, I, I, I appreciate the format in terms of getting so many perspectives so quickly because it is a story that you can and really have to attack from so many different levels. And I think always have to keep politics at the center of that. So for me, I think, as your question implies, the, the biggest challenge is suggesting some of the history, uh, the long history of these attempts um, to really, not just to reimagine the river, but the ways in which it has operated at each chapter in its history 
in both utopian and really dystopian ways. So if you think about the founding of the city next to the river and the kind of history, you know, mythological history and, and real history of the city being connected to a decision to found this colonial outpost right next to the river. But then the fact that, and that was a very utopian gesture in a certain way, the idea, a certain idea of this city on the edge of the continent and its um, founding next to this river. And then very quickly that turned dystopian um, to the extent that there was um, really dramatic flooding. And what we think of as the plaza, the kind of founding site of the city is in fact in its third or maybe even its fourth location because of the unpredictable nature of the river in its, let's say, pre-concrete, pre-channelization era. And then it operated in the same really drastically different ways even as a channelized river so there's something very utopian incredibly ambitious and audacious like building the freeways in this decision to take 51 miles whatever we think about that now kind of infrastructural muscle and ambition that was required to think that way really required a belief in the ability of engineers to completely remake the landscape of an entire region not just a city and then again very fairly quickly just like the freeways that dream turned and you know that utopia turned into a dystopia and the idea of of the, the dream of that kind of engineering prowess and expertise began to break apart, you know, by the 60s and certainly into the 70s as the environmental movement gained steam and as um, the, the, the first efforts to really, uh, in a grassroots way, if you think about the history of Fola, for example, began to question that kind of infrastructural regime. And now when we think about a third sort of life for the river, as we think about plans to reinvent it now, they operate at both of those poles. Again, there's a there's a sense that, that it can be a kind of paradise, a kind of Arcadian landscape, which I think can be uh, naive. And there's also, I think, some also overdone dystopian uh, sort of skies falling uh, worries about the entire landscape of uh, neighborhoods along the river being remade. And as usual, the truth is uh, somewhere in, be in between, but we we tend with the river as with so many things in Los Angeles to lurch between these um, th these really extreme ways of thinking and imagining a kind of future series of futures for the city. So I, I think it's important to tell that history as a way of informing sort of how we frame the discussion about what we do with the river now. Well, I think Christopher just, you know, gave a wonderful summary of, of how the river has been perceived and presented over all these years. In terms of, to your point about what we don't cover enough, which I think you wanted to find out, what, what do we think doesn't get covered enough? Maybe the piece that could be covered more is actually how the river is part of a global conversation about rivers with respect to the way we, uh, in relation to the to the conversation around resilience and how we have how many rivers have essentially been channelized and how we have built dams and and and, and we have we've got, gotten rid of our natural deltas and our our soft edges you know and our river here seems to be an obviously kind of really extreme version of that but you know in cities all over the world that are dealing with concentrations of populations by their coasts you know they're having to reevaluate the role of the river and it's a kind of complicated discussion which is really hard to tell in sound bites one of the people that's sort of popped up periodically to get involved in the dialogue here in, in the last couple of years is this great guy from the Netherlands called Henk Ovink, who's, you know, Mr. Resilience. And he, and there's many people in this room that totally understand that relationship. But I feel as if that doesn't get much of an airing because it's really hard. And Henk had a really interesting idea about how, and again, 
there are we've got some of the best minds in this room right now so I don't mean to sort of credit you know keep keep crediting someone who's over in the Netherlands but he did he did make the argument that perhaps you know when thinking about the Olympics for 2024 you know how about fusing an ambition for the Olympics with an ambition for resiliency in LA and sort of making the river kind of part of that kind of larger idea so I suppose that's something I feel doesn't get so slightly short shrift because it's ju- it's just so complicated. Sometimes the sexiest thing for a basic audience is like how much of the design is going to change from the channelized concrete version to a uh, Arcadian Wonderland, um, which that's, is a false binary. But yeah. that's a false binary that the media love, and the other false binary that the media loves is war between the Frank Gehry faction and the other faction because the media loves conflict and they love human drama and they love the more that that more um, sort of fractious side of the story. Resiliency doesn't have any p- people. You know, there's no face of that story. It's a really hard one to tell. It's you can't see it. You can't have drawings of it. It's a sort of invisible but incredibly important story. Christopher and Francis, thank you both so much. Thank you. Next up, we have Marissa Christensen, Senior Policy Director of Friends of the LA River. So I'm Nicholas Curdy. I'm a writer for Arconnect. I'm interviewing right now Marissa Christensen. She's the Senior Policy Director of FOLAR, Friends of the LA River, a nonprofit founded in 1986 dedicated to protecting and restoring the river. So FOLAR, as has already been brought up several times, it has a massive role in the revitalization of the river. Can you give a bit of history uh, to what FOLAR does for people who are unaware? Yeah, sure. So FOLAR was founded in 1986. So we are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. And we were founded by Lewis McAdams, who, as the story goes, got drunk one night and cut a hole in the the chain link fence surrounding the river and declared it open for the people. And that really has been our role for the last 30 years, is bringing awareness and attention to this public resource that has massive potential and connecting the community to it. So... How involved is FOLAR in the current revitalization plans and it's and with Gary? Sure. So current revitalization plans, you know, we were really heavily involved in the Arbor study, which was the study with the city of L.A. and the Army Corps of Engineers that looked at uh, the revitalization of an 11-mile stretch within the river, um, kind of focused around what we know as uh, the, the Glendale Narrows. Um, and, and that's sort of the area that um, is the most lush and green area where people go kayaking and stuff like that. So it has great potential for ecological restoration, which was the focus of this study. So we were really, you know, obviously very uh, positively, heavily uh, advocating for that effort. At one point in 2012, the study had a, a bit of a a budget shortfall of about a million dollars since we raised money to um, actually supplement the budget and make sure it got done. And then when the time came to actually pass the study and and approve it so that it could become a reality one day, um, we mobilized all of our supporters in our community to have their voices be heard and let the city and the Army Corps know that this was a very important and uh, beloved plan. And so we are continuing that kind of role in both the city's revitalization efforts. uh, And of course, the county has just announced that they're going to be doing an update to their river master plan. And we we plan to be uh, involved in that, at least from sort of a steering committee 
point of view. And as far as as Geary's plans for the river, we're a bit peripheral to that. Certainly very interested to see what he comes up with. And, you know, having a personality like him, you know, of such notoriety involved in the river, I think has been uh, really great in how it's elevated the river to more of a household name. You know, it's, it's in the L.A. zeitgeist at this point. So in that way, I think he's, he's helped the cause a lot. So the media narrative of like a conflict between the grassroots movement and Gary is a little fabricated? <laughs> That's a, a tough question. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know how fabricated or unfabricated it is. I will say that I think a lot of that quote-unquote conflict comes from fear, right? And, and people fear what they don't know or don't understand. And so I think since there's a, a planning process that's happening and that people don't know exactly what the outcome of it is going to be yet, that engenders fear. So I'm sure a lot of that will be solved when sort of plans are finally revealed and then the discussion can kind of be out in the open. So yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> so education is a huge aspect of what Fuller does. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of your educational programs and the work you do with local schools? Yeah, absolutely. So education is a huge aspect. Uh, so we have a few different things going on. Um, we have an in-school curriculum where we do work with schools and then sort of do some teaching in the class about the river and aquatic life. Uh, and then bring field trips of school-age children, you know, elementary school up through high school, to the river to actually get them to interact and, you know, dissect macroinvertebrates and then all of that stuff. Uh, we also have a number of tours that we do on a, a regular basis, sort of for the general public. And a lot of that launches from uh, the Frog Spot, which is located right on the river in Elysian Valley. Steve Appleton is here and on the, the panel later, and he's the owner of that location. And we have a citizen science program as well, which is just launched. It's a partnership we have with the uh, LA Waterkeeper, where we are, it's called RAFT, the Regional um, Assessment Fieldwork Team. Uh, And it's basically a a training for anybody who wants to get involved to learn how to collect and sample water from the river for water quality. And that's meant not only to engage and inform the public, but also to hopefully supplement some of the water quality data that's out there because it's it's few and far between that those studies happen. In broad strokes, what would you say Folar wants the river to become and wants their involvement to be? So I think in the broadest stroke, we want the river to be a river for the people, Um, one that is beautiful and clean and accessible for absolutely everybody, one that is swimmable, you know, bikeable, boatable, fishable, a real river, a natural public resource. And so in terms of our involvement going forward, we absolutely have every intention of not only, you know, lending kind of our our vision and expertise to various planning efforts, but hopefully helping to guide planning efforts and projects and, and development opportunities to make sure that all of them take in to account public interest as, as the primacy. So really public access and ecology are, are just our two pillars and have always been and will continue to be. So Fuller has been working towards this for such a long time. What were the obstacles that, like the biggest obstacles that you guys came across? So I think the biggest obstacle at first was just sort of the the cultural awareness of the river. You know, even for me, before I started working with, with uh, Folar, you know, when people said the LA River, you thought, you know, 
oh, that drainage ditch, you know, <laughs> that, that thing encased in concrete, that's a river. Uh, and so I think the, the biggest, heaviest lift has been to inform people that there's a river and not just inform them, but to get them excited about the river and to make them feel connected enough to the river that they themselves feel a responsibility towards it or for it. And so that, that spans all sorts of different aspects of our community, right? It's the community members themselves that live along the river. It's the community in this region who may not feel connected at all to the river. It's, you know, the government agencies that are responsible for the river and that ultimately can decide sort of its direction and how it's shaped. And it's funding sources, you know, kind of really making a strong enough case for this river as a, a crucial asset to this region that people not only give it their energy and their best thought process, but but the funding that it needs to be successful. Do you worry that after revitalization, there is a possibility that there would be a gentrification effect in the areas that line the river? Because the river is ma- a massive thing and it, it goes through a lot of different communities with different backgrounds. Is that something, and you guys are talking so much about public access, is that something that you're considering right now and th- thinking about? So, I mean, gentrification is a big, scary word and it's, it's really loaded, right? And the fact of the matter is it's, it's sort of this this sweeping effect, you know. We we all of us in this room are in a way gentrifiers, right? You build a park and and that's part of gentrification or you know, you open an art gallery and that's part of gentrification. So certainly there's a fear in the community that it's going to have this massive gentrifying effect and certainly redeveloping a resource like this will have the impact of property value impact, uh bringing new interests and and sort of new demography to an area. So it's 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 a possibility and our role as an organization in that is to continue to ensure that this is a resource that is available and accessible to everybody, not just potentially people with with the money for it. Are you from LA originally? No, I grew up in San Diego. Okay, so what was your first interaction with the river? How did you come to work with Folar? I think my first interaction with the river is probably similar to everybody else's, like via the movies. You know, I remember watching Terminator 2 when I was a kid and seeing the big truck chase down the the middle of the river. But I think on a sort of more connected personal level, my first interaction was taking the train into L.A. You know, you come across the river at one point and not really thinking anything of it. You know, truly, because it, it doesn't look like a river in those stretches anyways. So I came to work with Folar because uh, I'm an urban planner by trade. I went to, to USC um, for graduate school. And I, I love policy and advocacy. And it's, it's what I've done all across this region. And it's what sort of feeds me. And so for an urban planning advocate, what more interesting, sexy, dramatic issue is there than than the river right now so it's it's a huge honor and completely exhilarating and totally exhausting i'm sure it's going to take many years off my life to be involved uh with this cause and specifically with an organization like folar well thanks for talking thank you Next up, we have two panelists, Catherine Gudis, director of the Public History Program at UC Riverside and the co-founder of Project 51's Play the LA River Game, and Stephen Appleton, public artist and co-founder of LA River Kayak Safari. I'm really honored to be here with so many river heroes. So Play the LA River is organized by a collective of artists, scientists, 
environmental humanists, scholars, citizen scientists, and more. And we all came together around a common love of the river in all of its binary loveliness, whether that is the industrial sublime of seeing the river in some of the southern and downtown stretches in particular, or the more Arcadian view where you can walk in the center of the river at the Elysian Valley and really escape. Or you can visit with the homeless encampments that also reside there, where you see the diversity of countless neighborhoods and over 18 cities that intersect in various ways. So we came together because we wanted to bring people to the river in order to let people know that the river exists. When we started, that wasn't a given. It's been in the press so much, there's been so much spin around it that that seems less the point. And yet at the same time, in putting together a guide that took the form of a 52-card deck that you could play, each card of which can take you to a specific part of the river with usually legal access. And that's a feat that I think still hasn't been paralleled. There are a few guides that I really value. Uh, Folar has two uh, river guides that are fantastic. You know, they're, uh, you know, we've got the Creek Freak and Linton's Guide to the River, which is, a, you know, is a few years old. But we wanted to be able to get people to the river to experience the river and let the river be its own best advocate. We also wanted people to participate in using that space in a playful way in which they might also do some important political work. So play is about fun, but it's also about reimagining imagining what you might be able to do at these various sites. And it's also about instantiating a public sphere. In other words, there's a political purpose that needs to be engaged. And we were hopeful that by bringing people to the river, whether it was through artistic activities or through advocating for kayaking, or whether it was for pop-up picnics like Leela Higgins was hosting on a regular basis and continues to, or whether it was through art projects, that we might bring people to discover the river as theirs, recognize the history of those sites through our card deck and guide, and also engage digital media to let people post and share what they were doing there. We hope that in that way, we could serve both that leisure and entertainment factor, but also to do some really important work about embodiment, how we can embodiment the public who has been by the river multi-generationally, but also in going forward can have a stake and lay claim to that river as it revitalizes. So I guess I'm not as fun as all that because that just really sounded academic. (laughs) The results are fun though. (laughs) Shall I go ahead? Yes, please. So, Stephen Appleton, and there, there are a lot of parallels uh, to what Catherine's talking about. Uh, I come from a public art background, and really my engagement with the river uh, comes from this orientation about wanting to do something. So, you know, the Arcadian has been uh, spoken about a lot tonight. I would suggest there's also the less tame version of the river, and I'm really interested in that. I'm also interested in that from an architectural perspective. I'm also interested in that in a social perspective. So Ellie River Kayak Safari was a little bit tongue-in-cheek when we started it because we knew about the river. I had spent a lot of time day-to-day and still do on the river, and I knew that it was an experience that uh, was really uh, changing for people. So just today, I was on the river with a group of students who are mapping storm drains. It's a really practical project about doing some filtration of storm drain outfalls in a pilot program. When I came back, there's a guy with his daughter. They went, they said, can I see the water? It's all plants here, go over through here. And they came back very effusive. And there, there is this experience that I think is really transformational. We've taken about 60,000 people down the river, free, cheap, sometimes paid. And what happens when you go down below the sound plane of the, the city, I think is significant. It's not much spoken about. I see Leela nodding her head. There is an experience where you're entering into the river. Now you're sort of on the stage. Uh, the theater is up there. 
And what you hear is completely transformed. So that, that kind of auditory experience. I also feel that for people getting out in a kayak or in certain other kind of physical experiences, it's very transformational. You're out of your element. There, it, so I think the desire people have for that experience is not just about a, a controlled space or, or just about access. It's also about this kind of freedom that we experience within the city, where suddenly you're released from certain things within the city. You may even be released from your technology for a while. I kind of bemoan the iPhone 7 that now it's waterproof because I had a great excuse to tell people to leave it behind and be engaged with those 14 people on that trip. I, I want to just comment on just briefly that also kind of on a, this question about uh, the hyperbole and the dichotomies that come out through the press and, and through this conversation. For me, anytime we're looking for the answer or the design, regardless of the, the personality, I think we, we err. You know, I, I've been really uh, inspired, as obviously the Pitzer Committee was too, by Alejandro Aravena's projects, where you're looking at social housing, where you have two units wide at the bottom and one at the top, leaving an open space and a series of broken teeth. And I, I think it's a perfect metaphor for how we might want to think about design and think about the river. The opportunity of that was started from pragmatism. There was a budget limit. Either the house was going to be too far away from the city or it was going to be too small. Instead, it invested in a kind of uh, social venture capital that the individuals who own that property would then express through it later, but it also leveraged their labor. So I, I, I'm a big believer in the action base right now. And so through kayaking, my small group, we have a little subgroup called River Action Partners, where we're really working to direct technical and hands-on solutions so that we can take and harness that enthusiasm people have with direct contact involvement in the river. And can I just add that I actually was a spy on your educational adventure this morning. I was on the path and I was listening because I was walking and it was a really engaging moment of really enabling people to explore and experience and engage. So how do you, how do you uh, raise the awareness of, of both the river and the organizations that you run? And who are the people that are, that are coming to engage in many ways, because we were something of an ad hoc group, kind of a scrappy group that got some grant money to do stuff together and don't have our own infrastructure. We were relying on the river infrastructure. It's really challenging because our hope was that we could be people-based, that we could crowdsource, that we would be able to engage you know, so many different communities along the span of the river. And that's really difficult to do. And in many ways, I think the starting point is perhaps some of the environmental justice organizations. And we did a lot of work to reach out to different organizations within a few miles of the river and who'd been you know, sort of advocating for the river in different stretches. In hindsight, it would have been perhaps advantageous to actually figure out more long-term strategies for being able to engage those different activist organizations because I feel that they are the representatives of their communities in ways that as a collective outside of all of those communities, we, you know, couldn't possibly, you know, meet the tasks at hand. But that said, there's so much interest in being able to figure out how to get to the river that simply using, you know, digital sources and really um, advertising our, you know, art events or just the variety of events in different locations, we could get people who were passers-by or who already knew about it. But, you know, again, I think along the entire stretch of the river, what's really key is the outreach tools that we might be able to use in terms of all of those different groups that are already active in their own neighborhoods. So being able to harness that, I think, is really key. 
um, and is probably what needs to happen more in going forward. So, uh, you know, this the, the theme of the river has been used should be spoken about, yeah. too. And so I think the second kayak trip we took, an elderly gentleman who was about 80 years old came up to me in Spanish and explained how he and his buddies had had a kayak that he made out of plot plywood and they had a, a bike dolly. And one of the boys would put it in and they'd go downstream to downtown. The other two would pedal down, pick it up, bring it back, and they'd go in a cycle. So it's been going on for a while. For me, in terms of how to engage people with the river, I've been just, I I could say blessed, and I I really feel it that way, to have uh, so many friends on different facets working here in the river. So I see Mia nodding her head, and and she should, because Mia has brought so many people to the river to kayak with us. And that's always been a context for conversation. There's Julie, there's Folar and their involvement with the Frog Spot, where a few years ago, what had been my outdoor sculpture studio really felt like a public moment coming, and Folar was ready to come in and step onto that land and take a role. So, you know, we've had opportunity to do community paddle events, and there are challenges in in the fear of change and and how we manage that. Um, But the, the ways, the kind of strategies I'm having or trying to work with are to engage people in action. So as opposed to sitting around and talking about the design or the outcome, more to engage with the process. And in that process, I think there's a better understanding that comes. Um, And so that's what I'm most interested in, the ways in which we access social spaces in which we come to understanding and and talk through issues rather than attaching them to results at this stage in the game. Obviously, there there have to be, and there are huge infrastructural challenges that, that must be dealt with in, in professional ways. By the same token, a lot of it really comes down to how people come to understand that through, through communicating. And I think some of the educational aspects are also worth reiterating that I think that Friends of the LA River and many other organizations and that Mia has written about and talked about and that you know at the Bowtie Parcel is happening all the time, how we engage youth in a creative reimagination of the uses of public space and the river in particular, how we engage them as citizen scientists. And I think some of those different school projects have been really fruitful. We partner, we've been partnering with Artworks LA, which runs programs with 17 um, continuation high schools. And some of the kids can't leave probation camp to go to the river. So it becomes a metaphor. And yet the imagination around that is incredible. So that's another powerful force that the river can actually serve as, right? As um, inspiring, not just play and ideas, but also that metaphorical role of, you know, being invested in your future. I just wanted to say one thing too. And I, one of the other kind of uh, tropes and stereotypes of all this is that there's the designers, there's the community and there's government and the politicians and the developers, you know. And one of the big experiences for me has been engaged in the civic activity and understand the depth of emotion and attachment and design sensibility that goes through the civic design process too. And the kind of respect that that I think as a civic activity, this is gaining. And uh, I really appreciate um, and have learned a lot. You know, there was a tendency as a citizen to kind of look at government in this negative way. And this has been a kind of opening process for me as a person and as a citizen. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your stories and your experiences with the river. Next up, we have Deborah Weintraub, Chief Deputy City Engineer for Los Angeles. We have Deborah Weintraub right now. She's the 
Chief Deputy City Engineer and the Senior Deputy for the Bureau of Engineering of the City of Los Angeles. Among a lot of other projects, she oversaw the implementation of the LA River Revitalization Plan, for which she won the AIA National Urban Design Award. So to start, the reason the LA River is lined with concrete is because of historic severe flooding, in particular the flood of 1938. What are some contemporary strategies besides using concrete to mitigate flood risk? So I'm going to answer your question building on some of the other speakers who came before me and give a little bit of history of the city's involvement with the river, which is really my own history and my involvement with the river. Arthur Golding was the first person who took me down to the river. And I remember standing there, like you say, below the sound barrier of the city thinking, what a phenomenal space to reclaim for um, 32 miles in the city as public open space and a connective tissue that we had essentially turned our back on. There are a lot of engineering challenges to doing it. I'm not an engineer by training. I'm an architect. I'm a designer at heart, but I work in an engineering organization. And when we took a look at the river in the early 2000s, the county had done a, a master plan for just the easements, the small right-of-ways that run along the river. And my boss and I, the city engineer, said, we'll take on doing a new master plan, which is here, which was completed in 2007, to look at not just the easements, but how this connects to urban life, open space, public access, public connectivity, a continuous bike path. You could start way up in the valley and end up down in Long Beach how do we make that a reality and get all of the various government agencies control the river and access to the river on board? So led by then Councilman Reyes, who started the ad hoc committee on the river at City Hall, we went through a three-year process, hundreds of meetings with a lot of folks in the room who weighed in on the master plan. Council passed that master plan in 2007. And from that, we were able to approach the Corps of Engineers, who has ultimate control and responsibility of a lot of the river, and say, look, there's a new attitude. We need you to also change your attitude. And we just, after 10 years of working with the Corps of Engineers, Council in June passed the Arbor Study, which was also referred to. And it's sitting at Congress waiting for them to pass it, which will bring large federal dollars. Meanwhile, working with a lot of people here, Mia was on the master plan team. We've continued to do projects, and we've completed quite a number of projects, bikeways. We've been able to alter other public sector investments like our bridges. We have a billion-dollar bridge program. There's been a shift in attitude to turn our face towards the river that didn't exist before the city master plan was done in 2007. The current master plan studies that are that are being talked about, the county wants to renew theirs, the work that Frank Geary is doing. There's 52 miles of the river. There's a lot of room for a lot of input and design. What I'm excited by, and I still carry this 2007 master plan. You see my my copy is all dog-eared because it's kind of, it's approved by council and it's a guiding book for me. We The city last week uh, voted city council to open escrow on one of the premier sites that was identified in the river, which is the G2 site at Taylor Yard. It's a 41-acre site, which if we buy it over the course of the next 10 or 15 years, we'll see a real uh, riverfront open space per the master plan, a real transformation, and that's incredibly exciting to me. But we're also doing other river projects. There's an Albion Dairy site the city bought, I think it's about six acres that we're about to put out to bid. We've done a number of smaller parks like North Atwater. We have Mia's on this team as well, led by Gruen and Associates with the young design firm Euler Wu. We're trying to fill in 12 miles of bikeway in the valley. We have about, I think it's about seven that's done. We're 
in the process of doing early design for the remaining 12 to give an identity and a connective tissue to that. So there's a lot happening on the river. It's funny how the media woke up when Frank Geary's name was out there because it's such a big name. And maybe we as a city haven't been good about letting people know just how committed we are to moving river projects along. So in other words, the river is already being revitalized. It's not this futural thing that is kind of so often talked about it. Oh, it's already being revitalized. And many of the people in the room are working on pieces of it. You know, the play of the LA River was just as the kayaking brought a different level of awareness that is only helpful as we move forward. The Lauren Bond in Metabolic Studios, what she's doing with the water wheel and testing the use of river water. All of these efforts have been incredibly important to shifting the whole sensibility. We, we have a cooperation committee now with the county that meets quarterly and the Army Corps sits on it, where every river project comes in front of that cooperation committee. That didn't exist before the master plan was done in 2007. So even just at a governmental level, we're, we're communicating in a way that we haven't ever before. You know, we've, we've done so many tours on the river. Every Army Corps general that comes in, we give them a tour and the generals are always changing. <laughs> Um, And we often do it by helicopter because in some ways it's very hard to understand the scale of this piece of infrastructure we're talking about. But if you get up in a helicopter and you fly it, you realize just how massive it is and just how big an undertaking it is. And that I always thought my time were maybe laying groundwork for the changes and we'll make some changes. The next generation is going to have to continue to do it. So the work that Steve is doing with kids that Folar is doing with kids is so important because the infrastructure that we're looking to alter in various ways, and it will be different along different stretches. We're never going to get rid of all the concrete. It's an armored channel because otherwise the city would flood. But we are going to be able to change the concrete and to bring habitat value and and flora and fauna back to the river to make it a real useful and beneficial public open space. So uh, speaking specifically to the design that you've worked on, what are, what are the aspects of this master plan that you're proudest of, the things that perhaps unify the plan that make it a master plan? So the master plan doesn't specify design. It specifies ways to approach the river. And that's where the effort of Frank Geary is great. He, he brings a, you know, a certain aesthetic. I'm very excited by the work we're doing on the bikeway with Gruen, Euler Wu, and Mia's office. What it does talk about is the fact that the river was, for years, just off limits. What this says is, let's lay the groundwork for bringing people to the river in a safe way, because we do have to worry about safety when it rains. The water, the speed of the water in the river is very dangerous. So it does talk about bringing people to the river and then also allowing ways for them to get out of the river at times. You know, we've looked at examples in Spain, where I've now taken two trips to Spain, Mia was on the last one with me, where we looked at flashy rivers that are very similar to ours. And there's different approaches that were taken there that were very relevant to the LA River. One, it was a lined concrete channel where people are allowed into the channel bed. And when it's raining in the hills, just outside the city of Barcelona, alarms go off. It tells you, get out, the water's coming. The other doesn't actually let people get down to the water. The Rio Madrid project buried a highway that was along the river and created a phenomenal linear park all along the river with a lot of very different type 
of public activities along it. We also looked at the Yobregat River, which basically naturalized a shoreline, again, a lined river, and has it's also in a floodplain, so it has the same approach, which is when people can't be there, which is maybe 10 days a year, and that's Frank Geary's point. There are very few days of the year you really have to get out of the river, but the rest of the time, it shouldn't just be left blank and unused. It needs to, you know, we're densifying and we're growing as a city. Why would we not embrace and incorporate that into our city public space infrastructure? When did you first engage with the river? How did you get to know it? So it really was Arthur Golding who took me. I I didn't watch all those movies that everyone refers to. Now, I'm much older than who was it who said she was. I think I'm the oldest one in the room. But anyway, it was Arthur Golding who drove me down there and said, look at this, Deborah. And I had not too long before that hired into the city as 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 their chief architect. He said, look at this. We got to do something with this. And he was absolutely right. And I remember we went down under the Sixth Street Bridge. There's an open public tunnel. And we ran into a gentleman, a homeless gentleman, who was living in uh, one of the storm outfalls. And he came running up to up and says, oh, my gosh, I just saw this bird and I just saw that bird. And it's so beautiful here today because it's quiet and peaceful. And he was right. You know, I understood why he enjoyed being there. We stood there with him and looked around and it was very quiet and peaceful, and maybe dystopian in its kind of infrastructural way, but also had incredible potential. Well, thank you, Deborah. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to ArcNext Sessions One to One, featuring interviews from our Next Up the LA River event. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, or you can email us at connect at Thanks again for listening. <laughs>